Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning. Welcome back. If you're listening in Hong Kong, I hope you had a great long weekend for the Chung Yung Festival. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday, the 24th of October. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And in today's business and finance headlines, China's stock market has dropped to pre pandemic lows. The CSI 300 index closed down 1% Monday to slumped to its closing level since February 2019. The gauge has fallen about 15% so far this year in dollar terms. The Shenzhen Components Index fell 1.5% to hit a four-year low, and the tech-heavy Chinex Index fell 1.7% to hit the lowest since January 2020. Escalating geopolitical tensions pose a threat to the global financial system amid heightened risks of higher inflation and slower growth, the Federal Reserve warned on Friday. In its latest twice-yearly financial stability report, the Fed flagged the potential for broad, adverse spillovers to global markets in the event that the Middle East conflict and the war in Ukraine intensify. China has imposed export controls on graphite, a material used in electric vehicle batteries, as Beijing hits back at US-led restrictions on technology sales to Chinese companies. China, which dominates global supply chains for the mineral, will require special export permits for three grades of graphite. And China's launched an investigation into Apple iPhone maker Foxconn over tax and land use. Chinese state media reported on Sunday. The Global Times said tax authorities inspected Foxconn sites in the province of Guangdong and Jiangsu, and natural resources officials had inspected sites in Henan and Hubei provinces. On today's May Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. You can also reach me on Facebook, where my page is also Peter Lewis Money Talk, or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at MoneyTalkR3. Major U.S. stock indices closed a volatile session mixed on Monday ahead of a busy week for companies' earnings and economic data. The S&P 500 and the Dow finished at the lowest levels since early June, while the Nasdaq touched a four-and-a-half-month low in early trading before rebounding as 10-year Treasury yields retreated from 5%. The S&P 500 fell 0.2% to 4,217. The Dow slipped 191 points or 0.6% to close at 32,936. The Nasdaq Composite broke a four-day losing streak, adding a third of a percent to finish the session at 13,018. The recent sharp swings in the U.S. Treasury markets continued on Monday, with the largest intraday swing since the regional banking crisis back in March. The 10-year yield rose early Monday to a peak of 5.02%. That's its highest level since July 2007, and yields later retreated from their day highs after hedge fund investor Bill Ackman said he was ditching his bearish bet on long-term treasuries. He wrote on X, there's too much risk in the world to remain short bonds at current long-term rates adding that growth in the US was weaker than the mainstream data suggests. The 10-year yield closed six basis points lower on the day at 4.86%. The 30-year yield fell seven basis points to 5.01%, having earlier touched a high of 5.18%. And the two-year yield was unchanged at 5.07%. 
Gold retreated from the three-month peak hit Friday as risk-on sentiment spread to the commodities markets. The precious metal fell 0.4% to $1,973 an ounce with the move lower in US yields, capping losses. The oil complex saw much heavier losses after hostage releases by Hamas eased some of the fears of an escalating Middle East conflict. Brent crude oil settled 2.5% lower at $89.83 per barrel, and last week it saw gains of 1.4%. The US dollar index slips below 106 to a four-week low of 105.61. The US dollar slipped back 0.1% from that key 150 level against the Japanese yen. It was all 0.1% lower at 149.65 yen. Bank of Japan officials are reportedly mulling tweaking the yield curve control settings. And the topic will be discussed at the next two-day meeting that ends on October the 31st. The offshore yuan was at 7.31 renminbi per dollar, hitting its lowest level in five weeks on Friday and facing pressure from a widening yield differential between China and the US. Hong Kong markets were closed Monday for the Chungyung Festival, uh, but that they did sink three point, the Hang Seng sank 3.6% last week to the lowest level of the year. Looks like it's going to fall further this morning, down another 130 points or so. That's down 0.8% at 17,044. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this fine Tuesday morning, after a long weekend, let's welcome our fully refreshed guests. We have with us Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant. Morning, Stuart. Uh, good morning, Peter. I'm just wondering why Barry's laughing in the background as if he's fully refreshed. It's a Monday night for him. <laughs> Barry's always fully refreshed, as is Michelle Lamb, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. Morning to you, Michelle. Good morning. And as you heard there, chuckling away in the background <laughs> is our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wardover in Washington, D.C. Great to hear you in fine form this morning, Barry. Oh, thank you very much, Peter. And good morning to you, Michelle and Stuart. I guess you must be laughing at the thought of us being fully refreshed, Barry. Yeah, you're right. Look, it is late at, um, in the afternoon. It's pitch dark here in Washington. Um, two more weeks and we'll slide back. And it'll be somewhat lighter, I think, as we go back to uh, standard time. Okay, that's uh, that's a couple of weeks' time, isn't it? So uh, not not far yeah. away for for winter time. Uh, let's start over here in China because there's been some big moves in the Chinese markets despite Hong Kong markets being closed Monday for the Chungyung Festival. Now, last week, Hong Kong stocks suffered the biggest weekly loss in two months. The Hang Seng ended at 17,172 on Friday. That's down 3.6% for the week to the lowest level of the year, although limiting the falls Friday were moves from the PBOC to hold steady its benchmark lending rates, and it also injected a record 730. 3 billion yuan of liquidity uh, via reverse repo contracts to help the economy meet its official growth target of around 5%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite, which lost the 3,000 mark on Friday, extended its declines yesterday. It fell another 1.5% to 2,939 and hitting a new low for this year. The index dived 3.4% last week. The CSI 300 index closed down 1% to slump to its lowest closing level since February 2019. 
And that gauge has fallen about 15% so far this year in dollar terms. The Shenzhen component fell 1.5% to hit a four-year low, and the tech-heavy Chinex index fell 1.7% to hit the lowest since January 2020. Stuart, if you'd start investing in Chinese stocks a decade ago, you would have got absolutely nowhere 10 years later. Um, I'm interested, though, in some explanations as to what's behind this latest malaise on the mainland markets. Well, I don't think it needs an awful lot of explanation, to be fair, Peter. Um, We know that the property companies in China are bankrupt in all but name. Um, They are bringing down the market. We've got uh, a massive amount of debt, um, maybe nearly $600 billion of debt in, in two or three of the companies. And the expectation of the market is that it won't be bailed out and that the government will have to allow these companies to eventually fail. Now, uh, to be fair, there's a really good article in the Financial Times this morning, um, or their online edition, which has got an excellent uh, explanation of of the current state of affairs of the property business in China. Um, But it is the case that... uh, I think we're we're seeing property as an overhang on the market because it was such a high proportion of the market, dragging the market down. At one time, property companies were between 30-40% of market share, um, and and as a result of that, it just is is dragging the market down. I think as well, um, there's a lack of uh, um, willingness on the part of many Chinese investors to put money into the market in the short term. Mm-hmm. And, and that isn't helping either. Uh, and we know that uh, when Chinese investors pour money in, they pour it in in big volume. So when they're, when they're not putting it in, uh, clearly the market can be very sensitive to that too. Michelle, it seems that even good economic news is not helping the market. I think it's fair to say that the economic data that we had last week was probably better than expected. People were hoping that that would give a boost to the market. But it doesn't appear to have made any difference. What? Why not? Um, uh, yes. So the, um, I think it's just reflect that um, the sentiment in the onshore market um, was very weak, um, and um, also, yeah, there is uh, some recovery in the in the third quarter GDP data, but that's after a a very dramatic decline um, in activity in the second quarter. So overall, I think that um, maybe China's growth is still consistent, maybe at growing at 4%. If you look at the average of second quarter and third quarter, which is still a pretty low number compared to the pre-pandemic levels. And also the external environment has not been supportive as well. So I think uh, if you look at the markets um, in Asia, um, yeah, China has definitely uh, been been quite bad. But I think if you look at Taiwan, Korea, I think they are all suffering from the uh, external conditions, which um, is to do with the increase in the global uh, in, in the U.S. Treasury yields that um, like, uh, like pop investors to start questioning uh, how to invest under this current environment. Mm. We've had all sorts of announcements, piecemeal announcements, I must say, about various economic stimulus packages, um, but they don't seem to have made any difference either. Is is that because maybe investors just don't believe that all all this economic stimulus is going to work, or or, or is there some other reason? 
Mm, so what I what I uh, pay attention to is the um, two major news over the weekend, which is the uh, government seems to be uh, in like preparing to buy more stocks, uh, maybe including the ETFs uh, in the stock market. Um, Versus just buying the, the the stocks of the major banks uh, previously a couple of weeks ago, um, and the second is that uh, maybe the government is preparing to um, issue extra government bonds to increase more investment on the infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. That I think um, on the later. It's just adding more debt to the problem. We know China is already battling with um, the rising amount of uh, local government bad debt. So I'm not sure if adding more debt um, would, would actually help. It could it could help revive short-term economic growth, but it just leaves the debt sustainability concerns uh, even, uh, even more difficult to, to be addressed. So I don't think um, that will be helpful to lift up investment sentiment. Mm. And on the former, uh, yeah, and and on the former, I mean, if you look at um, historical buying of uh, stocks uh, by the government, it it could manage to help sentiment to improve a little bit temporarily, but ultimately, it really uh, remains to be seen whether the government could roll out a, a, a package that could address the structural concerns fundamentally. And I think for now, the, for China, we still it is still lacking. Mm. Okay. I think it's worth worth making the point that um, China's stocks still represent a majority of those under the Hang Seng Index and therefore the Hang Seng Index is likely to continue to move in line with whatever happens in China and and secondly uh, Michel mentions the the um, thought that China may centrally buy a lot of ETFs in the market Um, which is quite a possibility. There are reports this morning of that. And this is exactly what Japan did a couple of years ago. And and, and Japan Central Bank bought billions and billions of of dollars worth of ETFs, and it did support the market. But uh, the the situation in China is entirely different today than the situation that was in Japan two or three years ago when Japan bought ETFs. Mm, and, and also government bonds that ended up owning more than half the uh, the Japanese government bond market in the process. Exactly. Barry, this is being noticed overseas. US and European fund managers, they sold $1.6 billion of Chinese shares so far this month. That follows $3.5 billion of outflows in September. Over the past uh, 10 weeks, uh, foreign investors have sold, uh, sold through Stock Connect over 160 uh, billion yuan. That's the most on record. It seems that, that foreign investors also are bailing out of the market. What, what are you hearing over there in the US about uh, fund management firms' attitude towards China? Exactly that. I think that uh, some weeks ago we talked about China being seen as uninvestable. And I think that uh, sentiment continues. And when you look at the outflows from China by Chinese corporates and citizens, uh, this gets a little bit scary. But uh, I'm further looking at China experts in this country speaking about the renminbi, uh, 7.32. I mean, you've got a weak renminbi and you've got a very weak yen. And I think that uh, there's a kind of uh, inward-looking in the United States, particularly with a very tense geopolitical situation in the planet. And it's not a good time. The stock market is here, uh, up and down, but not really doing very well at all over the last two weeks. 
And you've got Jay Powell saying that interest rates are likely to remain pretty much as they are for the indefinite future. But yes, as to China, I see no moves by American investors coming into China. I mean, after all, it wasn't very long ago, Peter, that we had the tightening of the high-tech export restrictions. So it's not good. Mm. I think the only positive thing on the horizon is the arrival expected here on the 26th of October, later this week, of Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Uh, there were two pieces of news over the weekend, which I, I wonder um, have also hurt sentiment and also maybe highlights some of the problems that the Chinese market is is facing. The first one was China announcing restrictions on graphite, which is um, essential to making uh, car electric vehicle batteries. And, and China controls production in the world of graphite. So this is sort of expanding the US-China trade uh, restrictions, trade war. And then the other thing was the investigation into Foxconn, which came out of the blue. Um, which is clearly coordinated by Beijing because it seems to be covering multiple departments in multiple uh, provinces. And some people are saying it's linked to uh, Terry Gao standing in the Taiwanese presidential election. Um, and as a result, making it more likely that the DPP is going to win um, that election. It seems that, um, you know, this sort of just highlights once again the political risks of investing in China. Do you think, um, Stuart, Michelle, Barry, that's, uh, that's been an issue? Uh, well, you know, it, it depends on whether you want to actually say there is proper manipulation going on in the Taiwan market uh, or, or the election of the Taiwan market. Uh, I think what Taiwanese um, voters have probably been very well aware of is the sensitivity that they have towards anything to do with China. So uh, China... Um, it, it, which tends to use a sort of heavy mallet towards doing anything, uh, maybe being uh, overreactive on this. Uh, Terry Gao actually didn't have a very high rating in any event, um, and he wasn't expected to win. But it, it, if, if there's going to be a further investigation from China on him, um, that probably scuppers his chances even more. Hmm. Michelle, is is this an issue? Uh, are people unsettled by these worsening relations between the US and China? You've got asset managers coming under pressure from Washington over investments in some Chinese companies. And then when people do invest in some Chinese companies, they risk facing an investigation as well of that, that company. Is, is this unsettling investors? Yeah, I think um, definitely the case, and it's been a running theme since the US-China trade war. And I don't really see there is um, any or any fundamental improvement in the U.S.-China relations. I mean, actually, I think um, among the investor community, there's probably some hope um, for a pause uh, for the deterioration in the U.S.-China relations, given that, um, I mean, recently they have been uh, agreeing on uh, setting up some working groups to increase the exchanges between the U.S. and China on economic and financial issues, and there have also been speculations that maybe there's going to be a, a C Biden meeting some sometime in November. But I think that's sort of like brought some hope that maybe we can see some like attempt a, a pause in the deterioration. But I think these issues just told us that um, this um, the, the, the this the export controls like like I think either from China on the U.S. or from U.S. on China actually there's also been uh, some uh, confirmation on the U.S. tightening. Uh, 
export controls on tech products um, last week as well that um, these uh, issues are just not going to 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 end. It's, it's just ongoing that um, there will be continued conflict between the U.S. and China um, to curb the rise of the technology uh, of each other. Barry, can- yeah, I would uh, I would I would support what both Stuart and Michelle have said. I would say this if I put on my optimist hat that uh, Wang Yi's visit here, and he's going to see the president and, of course, the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor, if that leads to arrivals of economic officials all in advance of the November 12th APEC meeting in San Francisco, where Mr. Biden and President Yi uh, are expected to meet, this could be very good for China, and this could be very good for the United States. After all, Washington repeatedly says, no decoupling. And if, if so, then maybe the Wang Yi visit is the beginning of something positive. Clearly, it seems to me from a Washington perch that the Chinese need the Americans at the moment, because if there could be some rapprochement which would lead to more normalization of business and trade links, this would be exceedingly positive. Mm. But the problem is, Barry, despite all these officials um, traveling, uh, you know, on long flights to meet each other, we've had a whole stream of American of, uh, government officials go to Beijing. We, as you say, we've got Wang Yi going to Washington. Uh, they meet. We hope that things are going to get better. And then a few days later, more restrictions are slapped on something. <laughs> what a mess. What a mess the world is. Uh, and, you know, look, if you look at the global markets, whether it's Europe, North America, or even Asia, of course, from this catastrophe that's undergoing, ongoing in, in Israel and the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank, it's been remarkably benign so far. But there's a sense that things could get much worse. And I think that until we clear out some of this uncertainty, markets will continue to move sideways at best. Well, we've seen some big, big moves in the Treasury bond market uh, once again. In fact, the biggest intraday swing since March when we had the regional banking crisis, when Silicon Valley Bank and others uh, went under. The the 10-year yield did rise above 5% at one stage today, which is its highest level in 16 years. But it then fell back. After Bill Ackman, who is a billionaire hedge fund manager, quite widely followed in the US and elsewhere, and has been very bearish on long-term treasuries for quite a few months now, he's now ditched his bearish bet. He said there's too much risk in the world to remain short bonds at current long-term rates. <laughs> well, And he says that growth in the US is weaker than the mainstream data suggests. Well, that may be. But let's not forget that on Thursday, when we get the first reading of uh, GDP for the third quarter, it's likely to show that the U.S. economy had been growing in that third quarter of this year at a 3% annual rate. Mm. You know, it's certainly not going to be better than 2% or 2% plus for the year. But, uh, you know, Bill Ackman gets a headline for a day or so. But I think Stewart might be the first to agree 5% yield when you've got uh, inflation still stubbornly high? Get used to it. It's going to be with us for a while. Is it not, Stuart? Absolutely. I do agree with what you're saying. Um, and 5% yield in, in, based on the last 10 years is a, is, is a decent yield. Um, so it's improving returns for savers, even if it's making it more expensive for people who have a mortgage. So um, be, be used, get used to it. You're right. 
Mm, but government bonds seem to, certainly for today, have come back to uh, being a haven for investors, haven't they? They've sort of oscillated between risk on and risk off, where, um, you know, depending upon the economic data, the yields shoot up. But at the moment, uh, they're being bought for the, for the haven trade, the safe haven trade. Yeah, uh, but I, I'm a bit doubtful about this, and it is all very short-term realism anyway. Uh, bear in mind that we don't have a speaker in the, in the House in the United States, Therefore, no decisions get made, no money gets spent. It's, it's, it, that's another part of the mess that hasn't probably been taken into account very fully, because it could be another three weeks or more before a speaker is elected. And uh, in that time, an awful lot of what's going on in the world could have changed. Michelle, quite right. Michelle, 5% on the 10-year the Treasury, it changes quite a lot of things, doesn't it? Because it makes uh, equity investing much more difficult when you've got uh, that sort of yield in Treasury bonds. It also has an impact on China. It's putting pressure on the yuan because of the wide interest rate differential. Yes, um, but um, actually in terms of equities, um, it's definitely negative for like, Asia equities as a whole, but um, there could be some uh, markets such as like India, Indonesia, that could weather the increase um, in your interest rates uh, pretty well. And we've also seen that these have been the um, outperforming markets when we see the increase in the interest rates. Um, but of course, like for Korea and Taiwan, these markets, um, the, a lot of growth stocks there, so the increase in the discount rates are going to be a challenge to the uh, to the to the to the valuations of these um, of these markets as well. Um, for China, I think um, probably still investors are really focusing on the domestic uh, issues. So I think if um, if we see uh, like uh, the policy makers rolling out some uh, policy packages that address the fundamental issues, which is to speed up the restructuring of the property developers and the local government debts, maybe the, we could see confidence uh, gradually improve. But um, I think it's, these things are going to take time because if you look at um, um, the economies that, um, that experienced a housing crisis like uh, Japan in the 90s or like um, Spain, Ireland in the 2008, um, uh, the correction in the housing crisis is, is not normally quite painful and it takes um, years for confidence to come back. So I think um, we, we should still keep the expectations low on China markets uh, in, the, in the foreseeable future, at least like this one, two years. Are you, are you more optimistic about China following the data last week, which in general, apart from anything to do with the property sector, if you exclude that, the data was pretty good, wasn't it? GDP growth 4.9% uh, in the third quarter. So it, it does look like that China could uh, well meet its 5% growth target. It just tells you that growth has bottomed. But how quickly, how strongly it could pick up from here, I think um, the confidence of a strong rebound is still very low. Mm. And and is the are the authorities worried about the yuan? We're seeing big capital outflows at the moment, aren't we? Both on the uh, uh, the, the current account and and from out from the markets as well. In fact, from bonds and equities, uh, people are withdrawing money. Presumably, this is putting pressure on the Chinese yuan. So the capital the capital account side of things are pressuring the yuan. But if you look at the trade, um, actually China is still going to run a decent amount of uh, current account service this year. For example, this year is going to be another, I think, two percent of GDP. Um, so I think when we look at the, the the fundamental side of things, actually, could be that uh, the CNY is not that uh, undervalued. Um, 
But of course, I mean, uh, the China, even though there are capital outflows, if you look at domestic uh, investors, there's still pretty tight capital controls in place, which means that it's still difficult for people to move money out. Mm. And what about the consumer? Are you seeing any signs that the consumer is starting to get a little bit more optimistic? In the data, yes, but I think when you speak to people on the ground, um, it doesn't give you that feeling. So on, on, on an, if you look at the data, the unemployment rate will miraculously drop to 5%, mm. um, but they stopped publish, publishing a youth unemployment data, which like makes us difficult to assess what the situation really is for the, for the younger generation. Um, on, on household savings, it seems that um, people start to reduce um, the savings a little bit compared to before. So the savings rate actually dropped to 30 percent, um, which is like if you look at it, which is slightly lower than the pre-COVID levels for the third quarter. And um, and for the and then you've also heard news about like people traveling the, during the golden day uh, golden week holiday so it seems that the sentiment has improved a little bit but i think um still the housing market is is still sta- well stabilizing maybe not dropping further um but it's still a pretty weak picture which i think it's going to be uh, a difficult um obstacle for housing sentiment for household sentiment to recover Stuart, what are are your thoughts? It looks like, from what Michelle's saying, maybe the second half might be better than the first half, but um, all it's doing is stabilising, really. We're not seeing huge improvements in the the Chinese economy. I don't don't think the second half will be better than the first. I think think the second half will be worse. Um, The move is all more negative than it is positive. People have withdrawn from the markets, and therefore um, I can't see... At the moment, I'm not seeing anything that is likely to be a, a stimulus to people for people to go back into the market. Um, they understand property and they understand how big a risk it is, and and they don't really understand how equities work. Uh, there hasn't been enough experience, and the equity markets have been pretty poor recently. Um, of course, a lot of that, as I've said earlier, is driven by the property sector, which is which is very poor. Exports from China have not been picking up as quickly as they could do, um, and uh, that that too has also been a uh, a negative sentiment. So I don't see, uh, sadly, I don't see a very positive second half picture coming through at this stage. Okay. Barry, let me switch to the US. Maybe I can start with a topic that uh, that Stuart mentioned a bit earlier. The, the, the House of Representatives still hasn't got a speaker. There's nine candidates now <laughs> thrown their hat into the ring, most of whom I've never heard of, uh, to be the next, uh, next right. speaker. Um, this is all turning into a big fiasco, isn't it? And an in- international Absolute, embarrassment. I- Absolutely. And I, I, I now observe that some Republicans are saying just that. It's a giant embarrassment. It is the self-destruction of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. And it has been, uh, well, three weeks without a speaker. And there's no sign that uh, the vote that will come on uh, Tuesday morning is, is going to produce one. The Republicans are meeting right now to see if they can come up with a nominee that everyone theoretically would support on Tuesday. I doubt if they will. But yeah, it's not just that. We've got uncertainty in 
the market because of the United Auto Workers strike that's now in its fifth week against General Motors, Stellantis and Ford. Uh, that could be settled at any time with a rather hefty wage increase. Uh, you've got some good corporate earnings. I think that's probably going to be the good news this week, Peter. Uh, Amazon, Alphabet, Meta. Mm. And then Ford and General Motors. But, um, no, I think this is an uncertain time in the States, and it's not particularly good. If they can't settle on a speaker tomorrow, and they still can't agree on any of these nine candidates, which some people are saying is probably the most likely outcome, what happens next? What's the way forward? Well, it could be that Kevin McCarthy could be back in the driver's seat, because as a desperation candidate... Uh, and I, I, I don't dismiss that at all. I mean, after all, it was uh, Kevin McCarthy, then it was Steve Scalise, then it was Jim Jordan. Now it'll be probably this fellow Emmer that no one's ever heard of from Minnesota. I don't think he'll make it tomorrow. Perhaps it would be good for stability if he does. But uh, I don't think anyone can answer the question you pose, Peter, what will happen. Uh, the Republicans are in complete, utter disarray. And is it having an impact on the economy, the fact that, you know, the House, the, the government basically can't get any bills passed, there's no funding measures that can be agreed, and also there could well be a, a government shutdown in, in November? Yeah, right. the, the government shutdown that you uh, referenced just then is probably the looming danger. I think there, thus far there's been no real impact. Uh, Democrats are clapping their hands with glee because uh, they are the winners in this debacle. I don't think there's been an economic impact as yet, uh, but uh, you do have a looming government shutdown in mid-November, so the Republicans better get somebody up there, whether he'll last or not, is an open question. Stuart, it's your chance to chuckle away now at, uh, at this misfortune. It's, but it's not great, I'm is only it? I'm only chuckling silently. Um, no, it is a debacle. Barry's quite right. It, it, it doesn't show the US to be in a very good position. Unfortunately, and this is the, this is the bigger problem, it shows democracy not working pro as well as it could do. Um, and probably places like China and Russia, where... There isn't much of a democracy. Um, we'll we'll look at and say, well, you know, we're we're in a better position than you are, um, and that's what the U.S. needs to really think about a little bit. Oh, okay. you're right. Well, finally, let's switch to Hong Kong. Chief Executive John Lee is going to deliver his second policy address tomorrow. He said on Sunday that his policy address would belong to every citizen. He posted a video on social media, displayed a copy of his policy address, which has a green cover this year and uh, a subtitle that translates as Strive to Improve the Economy, Plan Development, Benefit Livelihoods and Add Happiness. Mr. Lee is expected to address Hong Kong's sluggish economy, the persistent housing shortage and the SAR's shrinking reserves this year. So, Michelle, let me start with you. What, from an economic perspective, what would you like to see in this policy address to, to address um, the, the sluggish economy? Well, unfortunately, the external conditions are pretty negative for Hong Kong, which is like very sensitive to what's happening elsewhere. So I think... Even the economic challenges that China is facing and also the high interest rates uh, in the U.S. that Hong Kong has to adopt, I think it's quite likely that we are going to see um, quite quite significant economic pressure on Hong Kong. On a structural, well, uh, first of all, on a, on a political perspective, I think what people have been looking for is the, some uh, easing uh, of the um, of the 
uh, housing uh, housing um, housing measures that the Hong Kong IMA has improved has imposed a couple of years ago in order to revive the housing market again. But so I think I would like to see probably that um, maybe there's some cutting of the stamp duties on the um, on the people who migrate to Hong Kong recently under the talent scheme. I think um, this could be quite supportive, I think. And there, there are also a group of people that probably have the uh, fundamental demand. But I think I would not like to see um, a broad-based removal of the restrictions because I still think that um, the Hong Kong house prices are still at an affordable level. So I, I don't I don't wish to see the more easing measures for the, from the government just to just to please the uh, business community on that. And I think um, more more issues that I think the the CE should address is um, how we could um, increase the attractiveness for Hong Kong as a place to invest. So things like uh, what role Hong Kong could play in the uh, say the financing of the one belt one road projects. How could Hong Kong be a like super financial connector in the in the like between Middle East and China? I think these things I would like to see more like uh, like detailed plans from the government on how to achieve that. Uh, we're now running deficits here in uh, in Hong Kong, and our reserves are about twenty percent lower than what they were four years ago. Is this an issue that Hong Kong is going to have to start thinking about, and maybe uh, some long term tax changes, maybe even to to try and address this? Because we can't carry on running deficits, can we? Yes, um, but actually, changing the tax system it's uh, it, it, it's not a it's not a simple issue. So, like raising, so say raising corporate tax could risk uh, even undermining the corporate investment even more. So, and I would think it would be the the government would be very reluctant to do it, given that they are now trying to learn investment from abroad. So, it's not that simple and. Um, and I think if you look at other economies, everybody's running deficit anyway. Everybody has stats. So for Hong Kong, why not? Uh, I think Hong Kong should, um, the government should also like forget about its mindset of always having the fiscal reserves to, 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 to begin with. I quite agree, Michelle. I think um, ta- changing the tax system in Hong Kong, it's too late. It should have been done years ago. Um, introducing value-added tax, that sort of thing. It's too late at the moment. It's the wrong time. And in any event, with a recovery of the economy, if it does happen, we'll be, we'll be back into a tax surplus. The biggest issue, though, remains housing, the subdivided flats, the the the, the, the um, street sleepers, and uh, and and the one million plus people who live below the economic poverty line. Um, Hong Kong is in a bad way in that respect, and the government uh, speaks about doing something and never does do anything. It puts the bureaucracy in the middle, and that seems to be what continually happens, and it doesn't matter who the political leader is. The bureaucracy gets in the way of action, and I think that's the biggest problem that we have at the moment. 
It, it does seem, doesn't it, that Hong Kong in the last couple of years has moved or is moving far more towards a planned economy rather than a free market economy, which never used to be Hong Kong's way. Did it? We always used to let market forces decide, you know, what type of sectors need investment, where, you know, businesses ought to go. Um, whereas now we seem to be moving towards directing uh, investment into certain sectors, saying we want to be an IT&T hub and so on. Is that the right way? Well, it, it's the way that we're getting, and, and, it's, and it, I think it's partly because most of what happens in Hong Kong is being directed out of China, and this is the way China operates. Uh, Hong Kong no longer has the ability to think for itself and make its own decisions. It needs to get permission for whatever it does from China, and China is uh, operates on the basis of directing its economy and its money and its act- actions from one sector to another, wherever it sees the need. Um, Hong Kong needs to think about being able to be stronger in doing its own thing, but it hasn't proven to be the case so far. Mm. Now, the problem is Hong Kong's economy, it's been in a recession three years out of the last four, hasn't it? So all, all these things that the government has announced previously hasn't, hasn't really helped the Hong Kong economy. No, and, and that's possibly where if we, if we put money into certain sectors, growth sectors, for example, we might eventually come out of that recession. Um, it, it's a tough call, but we, we do need to come out of that recession. And coming out of the recession will actually um, bring back the, um, the reserves. But we still have a very large pot of reserves. Don't, don't get mm. me wrong. Um, we, we aren't in any desperate need for money at all at this stage. Okay. Well, thank you all very much for your thoughts there on a a wide range of uh, subjects. Good to hear what you're thinking. That was Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant. Also, Michelle Lam, who is Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. And Barry Ward, our US Economics Correspondent over in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wednesday's show, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. And with a view from Japan is Dan Kerrigan, CEO of Interactive Broker Securities in Japan. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk.